Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. When you're ready, sir, let's get underway. Yeah. Hi, I'm Tobias Carlyle. This is the Acquirers Podcast. My special guest today is Christopher Bloomstrand of Semper Augustus. It's named after a tulip. It's appropriate for these times. We're going to talk to him right after this. Tobias Carlyle is the founder and principal of Acquirers Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquirers Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquirers Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit AcquiresFunds.com. How are you doing, Chris? Well, Toby, how are you? Well, thank you. Uh, so Semper Augustus, I did just look this up because I was looking for the Latin translation, but I, I realize now that it's named for a tulip, presumably a reference to tulip mania. What's the derivation of the name? Yeah, precisely. So loosely translated from Latin, it would be always majestic. But having read Kindleberger, you know, back in my back in my it's youth and, and all and all the classics, uh, the Semper Augustus was the most inflated of the tulip bulbs in 1637 Holland. And so at the point in my life that I thought I was going to start a firm, which was years in advance of starting the firm, I kind of harbored the name and hope nobody would would latch onto the name. And so, you know, when, it's, when did it was you appropriate. Launch? Pardon? When did you launch? Uh, very end of 98, early 99. Oh, so, so right into know, the teeth of the, uh... the... The name was appropriate. You were you were heading right into the peak of the, the old Nifty 50, you know, the yeah. new iteration of them. And then, but, but, but it was really the tech bubble which was already raging. And so, you know, I don't think it could have been a more appropriately named firm. So because you recognize the bubble and we own no tech. And it was, it was a tough period for, for the value crowd because NASDAQ was up 84% in 1999, our first year underway. And clients were wondering what's going on. You guys are making mid twenties. Well, so what was the, what was the idea of launching a value firm right in the teeth of the tech tech bubble? Well, it wasn't so much that we decided to do it. It was a great opportunity presented itself. I had started my career at a bank trust company and actually did a few. Th I did a thing in the commercial paper world during my last semester of college at the University of Colorado. But really, my first real job was portfolio manager and analyst at a, at a good sized bank trust company headquartered in Kansas City and spent seven or so years with them. Um, ultimately moved to St. Louis and, and ran their investment office both in St. Louis and in Colorado with an eye toward ultimately moving back to Colorado where I grew up and wound up being introduced to a, a very wealthy family in St. Louis, the patriarch. Um, and, I, and I'll tell this story for a minute. Um, patriarch of this family, born in 1903, takes over his family's brokerage firm, which had been founded, I think, back in the 1860s. So mid-1920s, his father passes away. He comes into the firm as a junior partner in early 1928. And this is appropriate if you watch the Berkshire Hathaway meeting because Mr. Buffett went through this whole history of the 20s. So, so, so my client, uh, then not a client, um, you know, when I met him, we talked for a couple, three months prior to our start in the firm. But in 1928, he takes all of his family's money and any clients that would listen to a I guess at that point would have been a 25-year-old kid. Uh, they got out of the market, and he thought there was a bubble, and he was right, of course. But you know, if you go back in time, that would have been about at Dow 200, and in the next year and a half, up to September of 1929, the Dow almost doubled, and I think the peak was 384. Mr. Buffett talked about 381. So, uh, so obviously, the market had doubled 
uh, almost doubled up to 381. I think the intraday peak was 384, perhaps. You know, Mr. Buffett talked about 381 on Saturday night. But regardless, it would have been a brutal period to be sitting on the sidelines. It would have been similar to knowing there was a bubble in the late 1990s, sitting out for a year and a half or two years, only to watch the NASDAQ go up 84% in 1999. But, you know, obviously vindicated three years later with the full 89% drop to 41 on the Dow. And during the depths of the Great Depression, you know, this guy sensed that there was more value out there in things like General Electric, which no, no businesses were making money. I mean, it was, you know, nasty depression. Unemployment had risen to 24%. Uh, you know, corporate profits were non-existent. But you could buy assets for less than networking capital, you know, the old Ben Graham net net. So this guy says, I can buy GE for less than the cash in the business, not making any money. But and, and businesses also then didn't have the leverage in place that they had today. So, you know, he, he gets into the market and picks up over the years things like Walmart and Merck. You know, the basis on the GE purchase was, I think, 12 cents per share, you know, bought almost perfectly. And, you know, after all the splits. So, you know, this guy goes off to World War II, comes back, uh, doesn't go back to the brokerage business, but eventually gets into banking, became vice chairman of one of the big two St. Louis banks. And when I got to know him, he was long retired, had his hand in all kinds of things. He had some some tech investments. He had a contactless card, which is really amazing when you think about payment systems now. Visa and MasterCard going, going contactless. I mean, he had a healthcare card. He was a brilliant guy. In his lifetime, he knew, he had these wonderful stories, he knew um, every single Federal Reserve governor. Because as a kid, you know, the Fed was in September 1913. He had met them all. His family was well-connected. They were in the investment arena. Anyhow, when he got to know me, we shared this mutual sense that there was a bubble, you know, not unlike the late 1920s. And, you know, it looked a lot like it in the late, in, in the late 1990s. And so he said, look, but I don't want to have a bank managing my capital. And I'd love you to I'd love to have you come in and take over my family office investment wise. And so I'd always harbored this notion of starting a firm, hence the Semper Augustus name. I'd, I'd you know, had it in reserve for years. And, you know, I called my business partner, Chad Christensen. We'd gone to school together and kind of always sensed we'd run a firm. Chad had gone off to do public accounting with KPMG and Ernst and & Young. And in very late 98, and we made the decision, you know, that we'd always wanted to do this. And, you know, here's the opportunity. And so we took over this family's portfolio. We had, a, you know, several other accounts, our family's accounts at the time. Um, and, you know, you think about that period with the, the nifty 50, you know, those stocks trading between 40 and 60 times earnings. You know, in this family's case, there were a lot of low basis positions, but a lot of businesses that really, if you looked at the accounting objectively, they did not earn their cost of capital. You had even then huge pension liabilities, you know, already at that point underfunded, despite what had been an 18-year bull market where stocks had averaged high teens, uh, interest rates were higher than they are today, and you know companies were assuming, you know, not eight and a half to nine and a half. There were even some businesses in the S&P 500 assuming 10% pension liabilities, and we have a methodology where we you know, have, have ratcheted those assumptions way back to try to kind of normalize what we think the annual expense in a pension fund would be. But at, at bottom, there were a number of companies in, in this portfolio and across the broad stock market with businesses that really weren't cost competitive, that earned their cost of capital, uh, that had some of these issues. And we were able to, through a series of uh, transactions with a family foundation, and some crud accounts that fed income to the patriarch and matriarch were able to sell, you know, a huge chunk of this portfolio that was trading between 40 and 60 times, 
And if you remember the bifurcation that had taken place in the market in the late 90s, not unlike what you're seeing today, really. I mean, you know, with, we were talking before we started, the small and mid caps down, yeah. just getting crushed, international indices down. And you've got the S&P today down 10 for the year and the, the Qs, the NASDAQ. Qs are um, up. The Qs are up for the year. I mean, it's remarkable. Um, so, you know, it, it was an opportunistic time for us because the, the bifurcation was that wide. And it was a great time to start a firm. We found a lot of great small and mid-cap companies, uh, a couple international businesses in Japan that were just washed out and cheap and built a portfolio of fire truck manufacturers and small banks and thrifts, bought Berkshire Hathaway for the first time in February 2000 after the stock had been cut in half, after the general re reinsurance transaction. Um, you know, we paid the same multiple to book, 108% on our first transaction in February of of, of OO to where the stock's trading today, which is kind of amazing. It's, it it's is kind amazing. of come full circle because two years prior to that, the stock had traded at three times book. Um, anyhow, um, you know, we really benefited from that bifurcation and built a portfolio trading in the low teens to earnings at a time when the S&P was trading at 40 times. The NASDAQ, which had been up the 99% and in 99 was trading by March of 2000 at over 240 times earnings. And it was a perfect time to launch the firm, um, you know, because we had pivoted away for the family, away from those blue chips. We had bought those small mid caps and wound up like a lot of good value investors making good money during that first 50% bear market. And how, how, would you, how would you characterize your investment style? How would you characterize what you're what you're looking for? You know, I think conventionally, if you looked at us, you'd say these guys are value investors because price is a very important part of the valuation equation for what we do. But we're eclectic. I mean, I've got uh, – so our, our, our real core mission is to try to find businesses that earn you know, good returns on capital but, but that also have reinvestment sets to reinvest capital incrementally at high or, or accretive returns. But we'll do things. So we've got classic compounders and I've got businesses in the portfolio that we've owned for a long time. But we've also done things cyclically over the years in energy. Um, we've owned deep water drillers a couple times. We wouldn't touch that, that world today because of the leverage. But we own a couple other energy businesses today, you know, one in Norway. We own ExxonMobil here domestically. Um, and, you know, here and there, uh, if you're prepared capital and you've paid attention to how the world works in the capital markets, occasionally you get things that come along that, that I would look at as being risk-free or as risk-free as can be with huge upside. And, you know, oftentimes you find those things during periods of dislocation. We did some of those, you know, in, in 2008. Um, I'll give you an example of one that we did prior to 08, Apollo Investment Corp., which is, you know, Apollo's uh, – they launched a mezzanine fund probably oh, two or three years prior to the 08 uh, financial crisis. And I'm going to guess they raised $800 million, let's say. It might have been $700 or $900 million. But it was a business, it was a BDC, classic business development company structure, came public at 15 bucks a share. Um, uh, net of the underwriting discounts that the, the, the syndicate would have taken to bring it, it had $14.10 in cash. And they raised the money like water. It was oversubscribed. And so, you know, we didn't want to own a MES fund. You know, mezzanine loans at then what would have been 12 to 13 to 14% yields. In the interim, before they put that money to work, they were going to buy senior secured debt at, you know, 6 to 7 to 8% yields. 
Well, I think they wanted to disincentivize the KKRs of the world who were teeing up their own S1s when they saw how quickly Apollo had raised capital. And so I think Apollo went back to the syndicate that brought it public and said, break the IPO price. So the stock traded initially up, but then it traded down below the $14.10 that would have been all cash on day one, not a single investment made. But the stock traded down to 13 bucks a share. And so, you know, we looked at that and said, yeah, we're buying we're buying cash for you know, a discount to cash and looked at the business plan that said once they put that capital to work, there was north of two bucks in earnings power in the business and they hadn't made the first MES loan. And so, you know, early loans don't don't go bad on day one. I mean, if, if the business is going to be a bad business, it's going to take a financial crisis or recession or a problem or simply too much leverage and the business doesn't earn its cost of capital for there to be a problem. So there was a huge margin of safety to give them a couple of years to lay out the capital. And we owned it for a couple of years and wound up selling the whole position in, in the low 20s per share. It eventually traded into the high 20s. But again, we, we had no intention of owning a MES fund, but that was a you know an opportunity to buy you know, a dollar bill for, for a discount and wound up being worth more than a dollar bill. And things still trade today. I think in the teeth of the recession, it traded down to three or four bucks a share. I looked. I haven't looked at it in a few weeks, but it's maybe, you know, right around the original IPO price. But so, so, we'll, we'll, so we'll do weird stuff like that too. When, you, when you're constructing a portfolio, how many positions do you like to hold? How, how big is a, a, is a position at inception? And sort of what do you, how do you think about your risk limits and your diversification in the portfolio? Yeah, we've always been very concentrated at the high end. And Berkshire, since we bought it, has grown. Uh, we, we've never bought it at more than 20% of capital. But if you look at our, our 13F filings, you look at our composite, I mean, it's well north of 20%. But, you know, we buy it at 20 um, historically over the 21 years that we've run the firm, you know, we've generally had, you know, north of 50 today, probably 75% of our capital in our top 10 names. When we're initiating a position to your question, you know, we typically start small with one or 2% position size. There's an exception to that. Um, we are very eclectic in terms of, you know, how you would define style or style boxes. We don't fit well. We own across the whole cap structure. Uh, we've always had kind of a sweet spot for mid-cap companies, small-cap companies, but I, but I don't think about cap. I mean, I don't think about where companies headquartered. We're trying to find good businesses uh, that have the characteristics of companies that we're trying to find uh, at, at, at low prices, and when we get a chance to do that. But risk management-wise, for example, you know, we'll never make a, small, a tiny small-cap business or even some of the smaller mid-caps as large as, you know, a 10 or 15% position, you know, so we, we manage risk and define smaller companies that are often one trick ponies that often don't have as durable of a moat that don't have access to capital that don't have the longevity, you know, that, that aren't as immune from disruption. You know, we, we intentionally, you know, manage position size smaller with, with the smaller businesses. So there, there are a lot of things we do. I, I think, you know, I think what we do, I think we manage risk really well. I mean, you know, we spend probably 80% of our time thinking about what can go wrong as opposed to what can go right. And and for that, you know, you miss a lot of big mistakes. And I think the other thing we do well, I think this is a valuable, this is a valuable construct. And I don't know how, I don't know if it's learned or if it's simply risk aversion, but when, when we buy a position, my ideal scenario is that we've taken a toehold with a one or 2% position and that position drops in size, right? 
because you may have an earnings miss or whatever. Well, you know, we like to increase position sizes and clients have a hard, hard time getting their mind around the fact that, well, wait, wait, you'll put money in a business and you want it to go down in price. Well, yeah, you know, you've heard Mr. Buffett say for years and he's right. You know, you, you only need stocks to be at a high price on the day you need to live on your capital. <laughs> Otherwise, you want low prices. So we should all be cheering during times like today. Right. Well, one thing I think we've done exceptionally well is, you know, we don't play stop loss orders. We're not we're not traders by any stretch. We've had 15% annual turnover. So when we commit to a position, you know, we intend uh, to own those things for a long time. And unless, unless we're talking some of the cyclicals where we have kind of a target price and a target endpoint in, in, in mind. But the thing I think we've done well is if we've taken a position and we think there may be something wrong, not sure, not not entirely confident to where you'd want to back the truck up. The mistakes that we've made over the years, the majority of the mistakes, we've made plenty. I mean, in this game, you know, you're going to make a lot of mistakes. Um, we've kept them small and we've hesitated to take a 2% position that's dropped, you know, by a quarter and is, and, and is now one and a half percent of our capital to rebalance that position or to make it a three percenter. Um, you know, rare are the ones that that have been position sizes where we've chased capital and chased capital, because I think we've got a pretty good hunch when when there might be something wrong. So we're not quick to pull the plug, but once we know we're wrong, we'll, we'll pull the plug. You know, we'll move out of capital. But I think that I think that you know, the the times to back the truck up is 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 a huge art and couldn't be more important to the the money management process. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. And I want to tie this into your biggest position, uh, which is Berkshire. And you're you're known as someone who's got, uh, has spent a great deal of time researching and writing about it. Uh, we've just had the general meeting this weekend gone. Uh, the, I think that the, perhaps shocking might be too, too strong of a word, but the, the, uh, the, the scary thing for me was really that I, I had some inkling that this was going to happen before he went in because Munger said beforehand that it, they hadn't done a great deal and we knew that they had sold down Southwest and Delta and they'd sold down Bank of New York, which I always say has the very unfortunate BK ticker symbol. Um, and then uh, it was one, I think it's the most somber I've ever seen uh, Buffett in a general meeting and p- perhaps uh, compounded by the fact that he was he was alone for a lot of it or, or with only Greg Abel there for a, a part of it in a gigantic auditorium. Uh, yeah. what, what was your, uh, what, what were your impressions and what, what are your, what, how do you feel about Berkshire right now? Yeah, that, that's was it's all very interesting. Um, and I couldn't agree with your perspective anymore. I mean, he was extremely dour and somber and, um, you know, you think about where he is at, at his station in life. He's run this operation He's had this great American tailwind at his back where he's seen, you know, GDP per capita on a real basis compound at multiples over a course of a lifetime. And, and you really haven't had that in the last 20 years. And we've seen leverage levels build throughout the system, went through the financial crisis and took some opportunities and, and some, you know, made, made some very good investments during that period, wound up buying the railroad, you know, in 09, but had made the investments in GE and in, in Goldman Sachs. You know, you think about you think about running the operating businesses that they have, and seeing 
you know, the retail operations in the empire. You know, they've owned Nebraska Furniture Mart for a long time. They've owned Borsheim's for a long time. They've owned C's, you know, back to the early 1970s. And, you know, those are businesses that closed their doors and they furloughed employees. And that's something Berkshire's never done. Um, you know, they managed through the 08 crisis, you know, seemingly, seamlessly. Um, and so then on the other hand, you know, you've got Bill Gates, um, who he's very close to, who couldn't be more of an authority on what's going on medically today, um, resigning from not only his board of directors, but the Microsoft board to focus on what I think Bill knew was going to be a very, very um, profoundly serious thing, you know, and that it would impact the economy for a long time. And so, you know, we presumed correctly when we saw the sales of uh, the Southwest position and the Delta position to take them down to 10%, um, that it wasn't because he was teeing up the over outright acquisition of an airline. You know, we assumed they sold all of them and had probably already sold the other two, United Continental and South and, and, and American prior to the 10. Um, so, you know, I think he rightfully you know, having, you know, grown up in the wake of the Great Depression, you know, I go back with my own family and, you know, both my grandmothers when, when I was growing up, uh, having, having lived through that period and, you know, with large families and, you know, not a lot of resources um, and a lot of pain and suffering, you know, on, on the odd occasion that my grand, my grandmothers would be willing to go out to lunch or to dinner because they really just never wanted to spend the money. Both drank hot tea, for example, and, and, both, and with both for their entire adult lives that I knew them. They would wrap up in aluminum foil or a napkin their tea bags and take them home to the restaurant because why would you throw away a perfectly good, good tea bag that you've only gotten one use out of? We've lost that since, but, but Mr. Buffett grew up in that, in that environment. And you know, they have every right to be uh, concerned about what's going on because nobody can know the duration and the magnitude of where we are. You know, we're seeing the economy start back up and we're trying to put industries that have been closed back to work. But within that microcosm of Berkshire, you know, they've, they've seen this thing up and close. And, you know, we see it as investors and we're talking to CEOs and CFOs and people in the medical world and trying to get our minds around it. But he's running businesses and they, he's never seen anything like this. So I, uh, you know, I couldn't share the sentiment, you know, anymore. I think he's logically concerned about what's going on. It was sort of shocking that um, they have been so aggressive in their acquisitions at very even even December 2018 they, they took that opportunity to buy some more stock. Um, you were you were sort of suggesting perhaps hoping for a buyback through this period. Um, even 20 billion dollars that's a very large amount of money but it's sort of it's not a great deal of money really for Berkshire. Were you surprised that the the buyback was so small? I, I was surprised that the buyback was so small. Um, you know, we looked at the the business at year end, and I write my big long letter every year. I mean, the stock closed 2019 at 70 cents on the dollar of what we think intrinsic value is. And as we go through the big moving parts of the business, you know, three quarters of the business, you know, that that exists in the the insurance operation, which is still probably 45 percent of the value of the company. And then between the rail and the energy businesses, I mean, that's three quarters of Berkshire Hathaway. And those those three businesses are fortresses and, you know, really will not be that materially harmed during this period. And so, you know, to see Berkshire's shares down as much as they are 
has been surprising. Um, uh, you know, I think the stock is wildly undervalued today, given what I think is the durability of a lot of um, the earning power of the business. And we can talk about some of the the, the pieces of the business inside where you, where you really are going to have some diminution of earning power. But Please. yeah, I, I was frankly shocked that there was not much of repo. But then to put the cash in perspective, you know, if you think about it, and I, and I wrote about this in my letter this year, you know, Berkshire's taken a lot of heat over the last three or four years for sitting on this giant cash pile, right, that's now north of $130 billion, you know, with with the sales of the airlines and incremental profits coming in on some of the businesses, you know, they might have $140 billion in cash today. But if you look at the business post the Gen Redeal, when I think they ran away from the stock market and ran away from Coca-Cola, when it was trading in the high 40s to earnings, by doing the deal with Gen Re and buying the business for their own stock, you know, with their own stock that was trading at three times book, and they diversified so beautifully away from stocks which were 115% of book value down to 69. If you look at the last 20 years, the cash in the business has averaged about 12% of Berkshire's total assets. Well, at year end, it was 16%. It's probably crept up now to where, you know, you're pushing back on $800 billion in assets. It's not that large. And, you know, when you think about the insurance operation itself that had statutory capital of, I don't know, 215 or $220 billion, at year end, you know, the stock portfolio, you know, as big as it was, you know, pushing $250 billion, got down to 100, you know, probably 60, 65 at the lows on March 23rd, probably back up to $190 billion today. You know, the cash really, arguably, all of it is not, is not available for purchase, is not available for investment. You know, Mr. Buffett's always talked about the $20 billion that would just always be you know, the, the, the fortress and, and would always be a permanent cash reserve. I, I, I look at that number really as more likely approximating one year's worth of insurance losses paid as cash, which on a current run rate would be about $37 billion. And then you've got cash throughout the operation in the rail and in the energy businesses. And although you can't tell where it is now because, you know, we're, we're seeing less transparency of the MSR businesses themselves, and I've and I've been critical of this in the last three years. There is cash that's held in those operations, and and the cash in the MSR businesses probably offsets the debt. But I think there's probably call it sixty billion dollars of cash that really is not available for long duration investment in businesses or in common stocks. I mean, I think it's 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 the permanent cash reserve and in the insurance operations plus working capital that's required in the other businesses. So, you know, in today's world. You know, there's, you know, the, the balance of somewhere between 60 and 140. So, you know, it's still a good chunk. It's still $80 billion. And part of our method for valuing Berkshire is we assume that money is going to get put, put to work. You know, that, that portion of the cash that we think is available for spend. So if today it's $80 billion, we assume that that capital, which today is earning zero, I mean, it, it, a big deal here at the margin, the entirety of their $140 billion a year and a half ago, a little over a year ago, was earning 2.5% interest in T-bills. They're earning zero today. I mean, that's a huge chunk of earning power that's gone away. Well, one of the methods that we use for valuing the earning power of the business is we normalize what that cash we think will ultimately earn, or at least that portion of cash that's investable, and we assume a 7% return. Now, we think Berkshire's hurdle rate for investing capital is still around 10%. So when they did the oxy deal, 
know, they did it at, at yields they thought would be north of 10% when they did the GE and they did the Goldman Sachs deals. You know, those were 10% preferreds. They were callable at a premium over a period of time. So, you know, yield on that paper was probably 13%. And then they got warrants underneath. And so you do the math on what the warrants wind up being over time. You know, those were high teens returns on capital. We don't think Berkshire's in the business of making investments in businesses that earn seven. The reason I use seven is time value money. We assume it's all not going to happen on day one. And so there's, you know, it's whatever point in the future. That's why I bring it back to 7%. We might have to lower that now with interest rates at zero and, you know, Berkshire seemingly on the sidelines for the time being because they don't know how this insurance world is going to evolve. I mean, losses could wind up being as some of this business interruption uh, uh, risk gets, gets litigated through the courts. Uh, event cancellation, you're going to have an increase in DNO. Um, you know, I think sitting on cash during the unknowable, which is the sense that you got, it, 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 I don't have a problem with that. I mean, I'm not in, even though I expected a far larger share repurchase, and I think the shares are that undervalued today, I'd rather err on the side of caution. And I don't mind Mr. Buffett erring on the side of caution during a period of, of this great unknown. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. It was that was the uh, the first time I've ever bought Berkshire was through uh, was on the twentieth of March for the uh, for my own portfolio. I've just never seen it that cheap. You know, I tend to be at the deeper end of the deep value scale, so I think it's it's well, saying something that, that it got got down cheap enough for for someone who likes to pay as little as I do. Uh, you, you sort of touched on it very briefly there. Jake Taylor alerted me to this. I hadn't appreciated the elegance of the Gen Re deal previously. Could you just repeat what you just tell that story one more time, just so folks understand what what Buffett actually achieved with that acquisition? Oh, it was incredible. You know, if you, you know, the, the, the success that Berkshire Hathaway had had from the time they bought National Indemnity in 1967 and got into the insurance game, the success they had investing their surplus capital and their float in common stocks was extraordinary, you know, post the 1973 bear market that took the S&P and the Dow down by almost 50%. From that period, from the mid 70s through 1998, you, know, you had this phenomenal bull market. And, you know, you, you could either mark the, the, the low to 19, late 1974, where the Dow had fallen from 1,000 to 554, I think it was. Or in 1982, where the Dow had fallen from 1,000 again, back down to 778. I mean, there were 17 years, 16 years from 1966 when the Dow first traded at 1,000 to where it didn't really break above 1,000. You, you went through these, these, these rallies and these sell-offs. So it was just a long bear market during a period where inflation was very high. I mean, peak, peak to trough from the peak in 1966 to 1982 Investors in, in the Dow or the S&P lost 75% of the purchasing power of their capital. Mm -hmm. So you were down 25% in price in 1982 from the 1,000 peak to the 778. You made some dividends, but you know stocks were wildly inexpensive. I mean, in 1982, profit margins had been wiped out. Um, you know, we were dealing with the inflation. Um, margins had fallen from you know 6.5% at their highs to 3%. And stocks traded at at, at um, you know seven times earnings, so you were paying seven times for a three percent profit margin, which becomes twenty one percent of sales. And so, regardless, during the bull market, that that for Berkshires and Berkshire shares, 
and the stocks they invested in ended in 98, didn't end in 2000, they ended in 98. That's when Coke peaked. You know, Coke had grown to 45% of Berkshire's stock portfolio. Now, they had bought it for the first time in 1988 uh, after the stock market crash. And, you know, Berkshire had made something like 13 times their money just on the Coke piece. But everything that they did, I mean, you know, I've seen studies and I've seen a lot of naysayers that criticize the success of Berkshire and even an academic paper by research affiliates that came out a couple of years ago tried to run a factor analysis of replicating what was important to Berkshire's portfolio. And I think they had two variables, beta and uh, price to book, maybe it was. It was quality. And, Is that the AQR one where they looked at, they said it was 1.6 times leveraged and it was, it was. Uh, to quality? It, yeah. It was a thoughtful paper and well-intentioned, but they also assumed that over the duration of the history of Berkshire, you know, this 55, 56, 57 years, that you would have operated your common stock portfolio at, I think, 70% leverage. <laughs> well, Berkshire's has not operated at 70% leverage. And, you know, there, there's, a, there's a, a genuine lack of understanding of how insurance float and surplus capital works. That was not a 70% levered portfolio. And if it was, and you were simply a common stock investor, you couldn't have survived 73, 74, or you wouldn't have survived the 87 crash, or you wouldn't have survived the 08, 09. So a well-intentioned study, but, you know, set it aside. Mr. Buffett, when he bought Coca-Cola in 1998 and through 89, I'm sure was not thinking about beta or price to book. You know, he was thinking about the moat that existed around Coca-Cola and how many servings of soda these people were going to sell 10 years from now and 20 years from now and how the capital structure of the firm worked and, and all of that. Anyhow, Buffett had a high-class problem. Berkshire had a really high-class problem in 98, and that's the history of their success. I mean, Berkshire had compounded their book value at about 29% per year from when management took over in 1965 up until the end of 1997, right? And Berkshire stock reflected that success. You know, then probably 85% of Berkshire was concentrated in insurance. So they had C's and they had the shoe business and they had the furniture mart, but they hadn't really bought some of these big durable assets that have come along in the last 20 years. So this was still an insurance operation, high class insurance operation. Um, by then they already had all of Geico, of course, and national indemnity. Uh, and so, you know, he had this problem and the stock reflected the success. It was trading at three times book and it wasn't worth three times book. You know, when we started following the business, when I got interested in it in 96, when they issued the B shares, you know, right on the front page of the prospectus, prospectus said, you know, neither Charlie nor I think Berkshire is worthy of buying. But, you know, of course, they issued the B shares to kind of phase out, phase out and, and keep these guys from running what would be a, you know, a, a, a ETF structure in today's world. Allow- folks might, yeah, folks might not remember, but, they, but the shares got so expensive that nobody could, nobody who wanted to, I, I don't remember where they were, but they might have been 20,000, but there were these groups that used to buy the shares and then they would issue their own units. So it was like a fl- flow through structure with a fee in it. So you could buy the units in the shares for much lower prices. Right, so you try- might, yeah. five or 10 bucks. Yeah, they tried to do it. I mean, they, they tried, and I think it was, I think the shares were probably closer to 40,000 because they wound up peaking at a little over 80,000 in 1998. And I think they doubled during that two year period, but whatever it was, you know, you had estate planning problems. If you were gifting to your kids and the gift limits then were $10,000 gifts per person. And so what do you do with your A shares? There were no B shares. So Warren and Charlie didn't want to see somebody coming in and charging 3% for the right to own Berkshire Hathaway per year. 
And so they headed that off and issued the B shares. And I think they genuinely felt that the stock at that point was probably overvalued. Now, they're always conservative in terms of talking about how well Berkshire can do. You saw it in the meeting on Saturday night, you know, but it was a genius masterstroke. Um, you know, it, it created the second class of stock. And But by 98, though, the stock had doubled or whatever it had done from 96 was that expensive. It was three to book. And so the problem was the stock portfolio had grown so large. Like I said earlier, it was about 115% of Berkshire's total book value, which is amazing, right? So instead of paying what were then 35% capital gains taxes, corporate tax rate, and selling Coca-Cola down and selling Gillette and selling the Washington Post, he buys general reinsurance, which as a classic reinsurance operator business had the vast majority of its capital invested in bonds. And so the size of Genry, which is where this is really interesting, where it was such a brilliant transaction, picking up Genry tripled Berkshire's float and uh, immediately diversified the stock portfolio from 115% down to, I think it was 69%. And, you know, Berkshire has lamented over the last handful of years the fact that he gave away Berkshire shares and you know, looked at, at what was spending, I think it was $20 billion, let's say, uh, for what would have grown to, you know, $80 billion, uh, a 4x growth over a period of time. And I, I look at it differently. I look at the percentage of the company that Berkshire gave away, uh, which was about 17%. And they wound up, you know, Gen Re was really a, a, a third of the business. So, you know, they, they used the stock at three to book when it was worth half that in my opinion, and, you know, it was a brilliant transaction. And, and I would contend here, low these many years later, that had they not done that deal, that Berkshire would not have and could not have started buying the utility businesses, would not have bought the railroad in 2009, because the capital was trapped in common stocks that were trading at 45 to 50 times earnings. And if he wasn't going to pay the capital gains taxes to sell them, he couldn't have upstreamed enough capital out of the overcapitalized insurance operation to do the deals. And so, yeah, you know, it was perfect. It's a really clever transaction that I'd never heard explained uh, before until Jake recounted you, uh, you describing that to him. So I, uh, I appreciate it. I think it's absolutely fascinating. Can you contrast uh, the, the market when you started investing in the late 1990s to the market that we're currently in? How do you, how do you see the current opportunity set uh, and where do you see the risks and so on? Well, I started investing in in the early '90s and had the had the run during my 20s with the bank. Um, so I saw this great bull market. You know, the first part of my career was a, a straight up bull. Um, in fact, you know, if, if if you look at what I would call fair value for the overall S and P 500 of the market. You know, the, probably the only time during my career that it was undervalued was 1991. We had a big recession in, in 1990. Stocks had sold off pretty hard. Um, and, you know, I, really not until you got – so so you, so you had the bull, and we start the firm in 99. 2000 was kind of the mother of all peaks, right, um, on all fronts. You had the 50% decline. Um, in 2000, and 2000 or 2002, but at the bottom, at, at the lows in 2002, the market was not cheap. It had sold off from a crazy high level, but on any fundamental yardstick, and you can look at the table I do in the last couple, three years in the front of my client letter, 
I've got the historical peaks and troughs that we think are kind of the seminal, you know, major secular um, highs and lows over time. And I wouldn't put 2002 in that bucket, even though the market had fallen by 50%. 2007 peak, yeah, because the S&P had recovered all of that decline, had traded right back up to the mid-1500s, which is where it was in 2000. And then you had the 60-plus percent decline by late 08, you know, into November of 08, and then, then in ultimately in February of 2009, maybe it was March, stocks were genuinely undervalued. You That's know, the 666 bottom. 666 bottom. And, um, you know, that that marked the cheapest my portfolio had ever been. And, and we fell by half of the market decline. You know, we navigated that, that bear market using a lot more activity than we typically do really well. But then obviously, you know, the Fed came in and, you know, put put a put underneath the market and levered up the Fed's balance sheet from $850 billion to about $1.5 trillion. And then in the successive decade, layered on three, three more rounds of QE, you know, ignited financial asset prices, kept the Fed funds rate at zero for a long time, finally thought, well, heck, you know, we've probably created an asset bubble and we need to slow this down. So they went through a series of nine rate increases. They tried to run off the Fed balance sheet, with a, which eventually got up to $4.5 trillion in size, ran it down to 3.7. But you had this glorious bull market in stocks that really wasn't predicated or supported by fundamentals. I mean, if you take the last decade, sales for the index have grown at about 3.5% a year. And people wouldn't realize that when stocks are doing, you know, double digit returns. But you had three and a half percent top line growth. And that's from the end of 2009, which allowed a full year of recovery. Um, so, you know, when you do the math, um, you know, we find found at the end of 2019. And I said it in the letter this year, stocks were at a secular high that rivaled and in some cases exceeded the big ones, the 1929 that Mr. Buffett talked about on Saturday, the 2000 peak were really the other two kind of major secular marks. You call 1966 a peak as well. I mean, it, 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 it deserves merit. But in all four of those occasions, you know, there are a lot of parallels between the current 2000 and in 2019. And so taking the S&P down 31 or 32 percent, to me, doesn't get didn't even get the market remotely close to fair value. I mean, we got down to twenty two hundred on the S and P. Yeah, I agree. It was it was it was only a little bit south of where it was in two thousand seven at the peak. Only just. Yeah, earnings peaked on a profit margin basis in the third quarter of two thousand and eighteen, at twelve point one percent. That was at the point of maximum benefit from the tax cuts at the end of two thousand and seventeen. You were still north of 11% at the end of 2019, even though profits were flat and the market went up 31.5%. You know, I've got fair value on earnings, normalized earnings that are somewhere around 100 bucks a unit on the S&P 500. You know, maybe 110. So, you know, fair value somewhere between 1500 and 1650. That's a long way to go. Yeah, I said I said eighteen hundred is my is my estimate for fair value on the S and P five hundred, but I'm a little bit more optimistic than you, Chris. Yeah, well, 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 what's the famous? You know, better to be roughly right than precisely wrong. I mean, it's it's lower. In fact, when we first put out our, our first intrinsic value report, this is a funny story, in March two thousand, because we were under a lot of pressure, because we were only up you know twenty percent in in you know twenty five percent whatever in nineteen ninety nine. Like I said, the Nasdaq had done you know, 84 
all of our clients, including the my anchor family family office client with whom I was sharing office space, you know, they had the second and third generation in there. Everybody wanted to know why didn't you own tech stocks? And it was a brutal, brutal period. So we were under a lot of pressure in in in, in that period. Um, you know, were new to the firm. I started the firm when I was 29 years old. Um, we didn't own any tech, and every client wanted to own. Wanted to know why don't we own some tech? You know, Mr. Buffett in in that first meeting in in 2000 that I had gone to, um, he was getting a lot of pressure. Uh, there, were, I remember distinctly questions, and you see him on the on the wonderful archive that CNBC has. I mean, he had one guy that 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 came out of his chair and really screamed at him for not owning any tech stocks, and it, it, the the pressure was that intense. And so I needed a tool to kind of demonstrate the fact that we own high quality businesses, what I thought they were worth, what I thought their normalized earning power was. So I built this intrinsic value report that that showed you that we had a portfolio of stocks that was trading at about 15 and a half times earnings. The S&P was trading at 40 times. And so our stocks then were, you know, roughly 75 cents on the dollar of fair value. They gave us 33% upside on top of our earnings yield, which was then 6.4%. The S&P 500 by contrast, when I did all the math and ran normalized earnings and current gap earnings, we had fair value at 590. And the S&P at the end of March 2000 was 1499. It was 21 points below its March 10 high or its March 24 high. And we put together the report and Chad, my business partner, who's the Eagle Scout, you know, public auditor, conservative accountant, said, you know, Chris, we're already under a lot of pressure from these people. Um, because, you know, here in March, during March, we were going straight down every day until March 10. The market was going straight up, you know, a lot of parallels with what's happened in the last you know, handful of months and a and, and couple of years. He said, do you really want to tell people that you think the market is worth precisely 590 when it's 1500? <laughs> Shouldn't we just say it's really overvalued? And so, yeah, I, I'm not going to quibble with your 1800 or 1500. It's overvalued. I don't think there's any reason, rhyme or reason, to put a precise calculation. We're, on it. we're like three thousand now, right? Something like that, roughly. Just just for people of the future who come back to hear us talking <laughs> about these levels, we're at three thousand. Yeah. So it makes really no difference whether it's fifteen hundred or eighteen hundred. It's just that's yeah, just I mean, from from these levels down is thirty to fifty percent, right? And that's just to get to fair value. value. Yeah, and that 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 gets you to a fifteen multiple to what you would call kind of normalized earnings. And there's a whole camp that would say, "Well, but Chris and Toby, you have to consider that interest rates are zero, right. and the ten year for future generations, the ten year Treasury is less than one percent. It's something like seventy basis points. The thirty year Treasury is one forty. All of those have been below one percent for the better part of the last two months when the Fed took rates back to zero. And so the two year looks like it's about to go negative today, or negative right? very soon. It's it's dropping like a uh, something that drops really fast. <laughs> well, you plop these very low interest rates into your DCF, and you can spit out a yeah, value an infinite much number. And but you have to ask yourself the question: Should you be running DCFs on zero interest rates or on a seventy basis point ten year when, in fact? The reason the interest rates are low is because there's no growth in the economy. And we're saddled with 350% credit market debt to GDP going into the year, which is probably going to be 400% coming out of the year. I mean, the Fed was going to run a trillion dollar deficit this year. They're going to run a $4 trillion deficit. GDP, nominal GDP is going to be down somewhere between 5 and 10% at least. And so 
I would argue that I don't think, you know, running uh, a DCF at zero or at 50 basis points or 70 basis points makes a heck of, heck, heck of a lot of sense. I mean, in 1982, there were academic studies. I think Art Laffer had a paper that suggested that in 1982, when I talked about stocks trading at seven times a 3% profit margin, that stocks were overvalued <laughs> because you would have been discounting based on the interest rate. Yeah. Well, the long-term treasury traded at 1571, I think, or 1578 in the fall of 1981, short-term rates were 20%, mortgage rates were 20%. And so you run those discounts. So you got to look, you got to look to the whole duration and I think throw out at, at the extremes in, in fiscal and monetary policy, consider that debt levels are, are, are at a point that to me introduce deflation for a long time. Um, you know, we either need to have a very long period of austerity to try to grow our way out of this mess. The problem is politicians don't really like austerity. You know, households, businesses don't like austerity. You, you get it one way or the other. You get it voluntarily or involuntarily, I think. And so we may be getting it involuntarily. Yeah, my guess is my guess is we hold interest rates low like we did for most of the last 10 years, for the next 10 years. Um, the Fed will run through various iterations of QE. Mm -hmm. We'll continue to balloon the balance sheet. You know, it's going to wind up more than doubling in size. You know, we, we went into this, the, the crisis beginning in the fall when, when the repo crisis um, evolved. We had the Fed balance sheet at $3.7 You know, my guess is uh, we're going to be at least double the $4.5 trillion where it was a year and a half ago. We'll be $9, maybe $10 trillion. And my concern is, as an investor, and I'm empathy goes to Mr. Buffett on Saturday night, Jerome Powell did the right thing. And we put a put again underneath the market. We introduced all of these liquidity programs because I think they said, we're not going to let families and businesses fail during this crisis that they couldn't control and had no business being a part of. And so, you know, we're layering on more debt. You know, Boeing's taking on debt. ExxonMobil's taking on debt. I mean, the debt issuance is pretty staggering. The Fed compressing the credit, the credit spreads with the notion that they can come in and buy corporates and they can buy less you know, by, by high yield corporates and even ETFs is astonishing, but they, they compress spreads. They allowed companies to borrow at reasonable rates, you know, at rates where Berkshire would not be a lender of capital or an investor. But the problem is what do you do on the backside? You know, once we've put people back to work, we're not going back to three and a half percent unemployment. We, we will have structural unemployment in a whole bunch of industries. We've taken corporate debt levels that were already high, especially if you take the debt that, that exists in the financial system. If you take non-finance debt out, corporate debt levels were at an all-time high, and now they're at an all-time, all-time high. None of this new debt that's been taken on, beyond drawing down the revolvers, but absolute issuance of credit, None of this is stimulative. None of these Federal Reserve programs are stimulative. None of the household bailouts, the PPP and what have you, are stimulative. This is just getting liquidity into a system, but it comes at a huge cost because these are enormous programs. You know, the, the, the federal government's already teed up three plus trillion dollars. Um, so what, what does the economy look like on the back end? And you can go through industry by industry. We can do it inside of Berkshire Hathaway. We can do it through our portfolio. But we've taken a machete 
to a, a, a number of our portfolio holdings. We've taken a machete inside of Berkshire to a number of the moving parts inside of Berkshire. I mean, you know, Buffett, so, you know, Berkshire sold the airlines, of course, and we know that Boeing and Airbus are going to be weak. Well, we have an investment in a company called Hexel that we made probably five years ago, introduced to the business by uh, a couple of friends of mine, you know, really smart investors. Um, I, I run a, a host of small conference every year for about 20, 25 good value investors. Um, and we do idea pitches. Uh, 10 of us or 12 of us will present an idea for, for an hour each over three days. And we, you know, eviscerate each other on, on how well you live in the footnotes. But, but I, I knew this business that was pitched. Um, and I've looked at it over the years, but I hadn't gotten into the nuances. And so when I talked earlier about, you know, one of the most important things when you're trying to find attractive businesses is, is how does a business invest incremental capital? Well, Hexel is a business that 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 makes and sells intermodulus carbon fiber. So you think about who buys fiber, you know, aircrafts manufacturers, Boeing and Airbus are 70% of their business. So they'll make, you know, the 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 prepregs for the wing assemblies that will go on an airline. And as airlines and, and aircraft manufacturers are trying to, you know, improve fuel efficiency, carbon is much cheaper, it, it is much lighter rather than aluminum and steel. And so you, you've seen an integration of more carbon fiber, intermodulus carbon fiber into aircraft. Well, Hexel lives in an oligopoly. It's a great business. But what made it interesting was, you know, I think people that screen on free cash, oftentimes when you talk about free cash being a, the metric on investing, well, a lot of times if a business is investing for the future to build capacity, you take your operating cash minus your CapEx to get free cash. CapEx during or, or, or free cash during that period where somebody's spending money intelligently can be really understated. So Hexel went, went through a period of three or four years to build capacity, to build polyacrylonitrile capacity for their wide body programs with Boeing and Airbus. So, you know, the, the 787 that, that Boeing uh, manufactures, fairly new aircraft we think has a 20 year life um, to grow units. They sell, Hexel sells about a million, four million five per aircraft into the 787. The Airbus A350 is their bread and butter. I mean, that's a $5 million ticket per plane. And so, you know, we owned the business for four or five years. They were spending about $300 million in CapEx. We knew that that CapEx cycle was going to run off and they were probably going to spend you know, $150 million, which would be what they've been spending on kind of the trailing last couple of year run rate. So all of a sudden the free cash is ballooned. These aircraft programs are rolling. They have carbon fiber and a bunch of the other aircraft. They've got a business that does the, 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 the propellers for wind energy. So they've got some side businesses as well outside of aircraft. Their defense business inside of carbon fiber is strong. But here we are, and the stock had reflected this program. And so we made a lot of money and, you know, we, we doubled our money in Hexel over a three or four year period of time. And the stock was trading at about 80 bucks at year end. And then they announced a merger with Woodward. Well, Woodward is another aircraft supplier, manufacturer with more aftermarket business. And so, I mean, I had Hexel, this is going to wind up being another one of my, you know, bad mistakes so far. It would, absolutely. We had Hexel trading fairly close to our intrinsic value number. I mean, it was fully valued. And we looked at the deal and thought, you know, if aircraft manufacturer slows for whatever reason, it will be good to have Woodward's aftermarket business. And so this this merger probably makes sense. 
They talk about synergies, but there there, there really were a lot of shared costs that could be taken out of the equation. We looked at whether the deal was fair in terms of how much Hexel got and how much Woodward got. We liked the management of both companies. So we decided to hold the business. Well, along comes the coronavirus and lays this you know aircraft manufacturer industry flat on its back. Boeing closes all of its plants. Airbus closes all of its plants. And the stock just got decimated. You know, it's down 65% from its high. And, you know, they've got a, a good balance sheet. They had a little over a billion dollars in debt. They've taken down the revolver. Um, they have plenty of resources to survive. They're still operating um, a, a lot of their capacity. It's a good management team. And we're sitting here with a stock wondering what does on the backside of this virus, once, once the government stops printing money uh, and we get people back to work, are we really going to sell as many A350s and 787s? And the answer is no. And so, you know, I had the business doing four bucks per share in earnings. And so at 80 bucks a share, it was 20 times, but they were still going to grow for another 15 years on that wide body program. And there was a call option in it to, you know, it, it, for penetration of carbon into the auto industry. And so there was a lot that was likable. And I really liked the management team, but, um, you know, we've had to take a machete because this business is not going to earn four bucks uh, next year. It's not going to earn four bucks the year after that. It's not going to earn four bucks the year after that. So the earning power of the operation is permanently, I think, diminished and harmed. And the question is, what does normal output look like once we get on the back end of this thing? You, you, you have to go through that analysis. For what's what's your impression of the your rough impression of the impact to your portfolio? It's not bad because it's really not that bad. So in a case of a Hexel where we took a machete to it, the earning power of most of the companies that we own is incredibly durable. Um, and I look at where our big pieces of capital, and I can swing back and talk about Berkshire, but um, you know, Costco is one of it's a top five holding, and Dollar General we actually trimmed it back for price reasons, but our two retailers are sailing through this downturn. Dollar General is a better business in a bad economy in that their median household income customer, $30,000 per family, they lean on Dollar General more during a downturn than they do in normal times. You know, they, the food stamp program will go from, you know, 1% of their revenues to eight or 9% of their revenues. So it's a better business, essential during the downturn, but better business. Um, we really haven't had to whack the machete that much you know a lot of it is more of a scalpel if you take berkshire which is you know this kind of this anchor cornerstone of our business go through the big moving parts the insurance operation you know 45 percent of the business highly invested in common stocks well you take the insurance industry and the investment capital insurers is largely again like what generally look like in the late 90s or in the late yeah in the late 90s it's it's bonds and cash well, we're back to a 0% climate on short rates. I think the government does a lot. The Fed will do a lot to compress long-term interest rates as close to zero as possible. Credit spreads will thus necessarily have to be higher than they were at year-end 19, where they were really tight. Um, but in Berkshire's case, because they've got so much surplus capital in the insurance operation, you know, Geico writes more than half of Berkshire's premiums in auto insurance, which is written on an admitted basis, meaning the insurance commissioners in each state um, bless your, your 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 rate filings, you know, Geico and all the auto insurers are allowed to write three dollars a premium for each dollar of statutory capital. We think Geico is always written at about two to one, 
So if they're going to write $37 billion, you know, they only need 13, 14, 15, 16 billion dollars. Well, Berkshire's, Berkshire's statutory capital in the insurance operation was over 200 billion dollars at year end. It's probably 185 or 190 billion dollars today. The rest of the insurers, National Indemnity, you know, Genry, uh, the, the 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 specialty business, the home state business, all of them put together, they write you know, call it $30 billion, not even $30 billion, probably 27 or $28 billion. Find another insurance company that writes $27 billion, let's say, on almost $200 billion of statutory capital. What that tells you is there's so much surplus capital in the insurance companies alone. And then you take the businesses that are held outside of the insurance operations and the profitability there and the lack of leverage there. And there's an enormous amount of capital inside Berkshire where if this pandemic winds up being really bad, Berkshire's not gonna be out having to raise capital. You know, losses may develop a lot worse than they think. You know, there's a sense that, that they're gonna have some, some losses and they've taken some business that was really badly written in Europe. Lloyd's is probably in big trouble today. There are a couple others. Uh, but, you know, there's no permanent impairment. Um, they've already sold the airlines. You know, I think there's some lousy businesses, honestly, in, in the stock portfolio, but the portfolio went in trading at, you know, a decent number to earnings. You know, if, if $40 billion, let's say, is the normal earning power of Berkshire Hathaway, and I had $42 billion at year end, and, and that assumes that they're going to earn that 7% on the residual cash. If you take that out and make that a more conservative number, call it $40 billion. And so today, I mean, Berkshire's trading at $420 billion market cap on what I still think is close to normalized $40 billion in earning power. The earning power of the insurers are not diminished. They're, they will underwrite profitably. Um, and so, it, it, so they're worth every bit of the invested assets of the firm. And with the stocks being down as much as they are, you know, if we have a depression, the stocks are going to get cheaper. But Berkshire will not, never have to reach into its pocket to liquidate securities to pay losses on the insurance operation. It's just not going to happen. So that piece of the business, which is 45%, is, is, is as durable as can be. It'll fluctuate with the capital markets, but it's a fortress. It, it truly is a Fort Knox. Then you move on to the the, the other two biggies, the, the rail and the energy operations. You heard Greg Abel talk about the energy businesses, and it was music to my ears. You know, I, uh, part of our part of our analysis of the earning power of of the utility and the rails is is hitched on the fact that they pay less in in cash taxes every year than they report in gap earnings, and and that stems from the use of accelerated depreciation for the fixed asset investments that are made. So because the rails at some level, but certainly regulated utilities, electric utilities, exist in part for the public good, they're allowed to use for tax purposes accelerated depreciation. So the whole world is on accelerated depreciation on steroids today, thanks to the tax code change in 2017. But but the use of that method was limited, you know, more narrowly to businesses like those two within Berkshire. So you have a 40-year asset and you depreciate it on a straight line basis over 40 years, for gap purposes, you take two and a half percent depreciation charge per year. Well, for accelerated depreciation, you're, you may be allowed to write down 50% in year one. And so what that means is your cash taxes are less in year one. They're going to be later in the out years. But as long as you're spending more CapEx incrementally over a long period of time, you know, th there's always a tax benefit. I mean, the energy business, 
has been paying at a very low rate. You, you lay in the, the use of accelerated depreciation now with the, the tax credits they get for all of the investments they make in wind and solar. And effectively, the government is writing Berkshire Hathaway Energy a check. And so here we are with industrial production down, pick a number, you know, 20%, 30%, um, unemployment, wherever we think it is. There are another 3 million this morning, 15%, let's say, you know, arguably headed higher depending on how long we shut the economy down. We're still using power. You know, we still have some portion of the manufacturing base that's up. You and I are online here using a lot of broadband. So that's getting sucked out of some, you know, natural gas plant uh, somewhere. You know, we're using power. Their, their revenues were down maybe 4%. And there's a lot of variable cost in electric utility. So, you know, in, in the deepest of declines, you'll see very little diminution of the earning power of the regulated utility, and it earns 10 on equity. And if we have a period where we go through a deep, deep, deep decline, they will be allowed to adjust their pricing to reflect a return on the invested capital of the business. And if, if everybody was paying attention, you heard Greg talk about the $30 billion and the $100 billion that Berkshire could spend over time on CapEx. So, I, so I've taken heat over the uh, over my assumption that there's probably a billion four in earning power for the benefit of, again, that Berkshire pays less in cash taxes. People have always said, well, Warren's always said that, uh, you know, with CapEx exceeding depreciation, that, it, it, that CapEx really doesn't equal depreciation, that a lot of that is required investment that they're not going to return. And I've always said, no, 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 no. You may be right, but they're getting a regulated return on every dollar of capital that they're spending. They're earning 10% on every dollar of capital. And they talk about all of these investments they're making in transmission assets, you know, pipelines. If you, and I've got a table in my, in my letter of the, of the last 20 years of CapEx and depreciation across the railroad, the utility and the rest of Berkshire, and they've been spending 40% more, let's say, on, on CapEx than depreciation. And these are all at accretively high returns on invested capital. So of all of the businesses inside of Berkshire, the utilities are an absolute fortress, and they're worth probably somewhere between 50 and $60 billion. Then you have the rail. We so you have rails on one hand, and everybody says, well, transportation is terrible because you know there's freight traffic is down, Car loading's been down for the last two years. It wasn't just the coronavirus. We've had less trade with China. So really, every type of goods that trains will move, with the exception of grains, have already been in decline, a very steep decline. And now they're down a whole bunch. So let's say they're going to be down 25%. Almost every expense inside of the railroad is variable. And if you go back to 0809, when industrial production was down 25%, and look at Union Pacific and, and the Burlington Northern and the Canadian rails. Revenues were down 25%. Earnings were down 25%. So that business, the rail, is going to be off. But it's not going to bleed red ink. I mean, you know, these three businesses are going to produce cash, and that's 75% of the value of Berkshire Hathaway. The problem you have is in the MSR businesses, which we've been struggling with for a long time, because... There are some genuinely mediocre businesses in the portfolio, and there are a lot of reasons that some of those are, are mediocre. I think part of the problem is Berkshire's had to pay such large control premiums 
for businesses, Precision Cast Parts being the largest, most recent big deal. Well, they paid, oh, I don't know, um, $37 billion, I think it was, for the whole business. Might have been low 40s with, with debt. And we own Precision when they bought it. And it, it, Berkshire bought it at a price that we never would have paid. Uh, the business was already in trouble. They bought it in, I think, late 2015. The energy business, oil and gas, oil especially, had already rolled over. And so the turbine business was already in trouble. Um, Donegan and his guys had, had built that business up through acquisition. Um, it was very much a roll-up. And I've always thought, you know, if, if you're going to buy a roll-up, who's got more information in the sale of that business, the, the seller or the buyer? So, you know, I think, I think Berkshire made a mistake with Precision. But who would have known that the airline side of their business, the commercial airline side of the business would be weak. And that that's really where Precision's bread and butter is. So, you know, forgings and and, and, and what have you that go into the manufacture of jet engines and the, the fuselage, um, this, this downturn is going to be a huge problem for that business. And so if you look at the evolution since 2003 of the MSR businesses, they're run on an unlevered basis. So, you know, if you look at the disclosures that used to exist in the chairman's letter, you know, you can kind of see where cash would net out any little bit of debt that existed. But these were unlevered. And over the course of, you know, 15, 16 years, you would see a decline from high nines return on unlevered equity down to after the precision deal for a couple of years, about six and a half percent. Well, I'm not in the business of owning anything that is going to earn six and a half on equity, even if it's unlevered. You know, it's just not our game. That's not our deal. And so I think what's happened is between the control premiums and this culture of Berkshire Hathaway, I mean, Toby, you sell your business to Berkshire and you know you've got a home for your employees and and, and you're going to get a good price. Um, how are you going to run that business? I mean, you admire this guy in Omaha. He's a god. And you know everybody sends profits upstream to Omaha. And I think part of the problem with this decline in profitability, and I was thinking about this over the weekend in the wake of watching the meeting, my suspicion is that some of these businesses probably have required more what you would call maintenance, CapEx, or investment in growth than has taken place. And I think if, I think if, I think if you know that the culture is, hey, we're going to make the money and send it to Omaha and let this genius reinvest it because this is how this thing works – you may have underinvested in your business. But regardless, you know, if you now have a group that has benefited immensely from the changes in the tax code, I mean, that MSR business that does about $150 billion in revenues generates $10 billion in profits, which is 25% of Berkshire Hathaway. So the other businesses I talked about are three quarters. This group that's 25, that's that's a quarter of the business, in aggregate is not profitable enough. Uh, you heard Mr. Munger talk about the notion that coming out of this thing, there would be some businesses that probably did not reopen. Greg talked about uh, one of the uh, a food business inside of Marmon that probably wouldn't open. And so the ones that are not going to reopen are going to be small. But there's there are enough businesses in that group without getting into specifics that just don't earn their cost of capital. And you saw they did the deal with the newspapers sold them to Lee, but they, they retain, actually made a larger investment in, in, in the newspapers. I wrote about it in the letter this year. Now they're in a creditor position, and they own the real estate of Lee. Um, you know, I, I, I suppose the machete that, that we've had to take to Berkshire has been exclusively, exclusively in the MSR group. And so I'm not going to give you a number. Um, 
with any precision because I don't know what that number is. But the earning power of that business is not $10 billion, as, as, as I had assumed at year end, which wasn't a high enough return on their $125 billion in capital to begin with. And now that we're on the coronavirus program and a diminished level of economic output, that group in aggregate is a struggling group. And I think over time, it's going to make sense to sell some of those businesses where they can because there's this giant amount of liquidity sitting on the sideline in private equity that needs to go somewhere. And whether these guys can do it or not, they'll tell you they can take a five ROE and lever it up properly and turn a business into a 15 or a 20. Now, whether they can do it or not, or whether it's smoke and mirrors and magic on leverage, so be it. But I'd rather give them a shot than leave some of these things unlevered inside of Berkshire earning inadequate returns on capital. There's a lot to be said for owning a business that shrinks its way by you know, eliminating places that are not profitable. I'd rather own a smaller Berkshire Hathaway that's more profitable than a larger Berkshire Hathaway that's yeah, not. Shrink your way to profitability. Uh, absolutely fascinating insights, Chris. Uh, thanks very much for that uh, very detailed explanation of, of Berkshire. I really do appreciate uh, the amount of research and effort that you've put into that. If folks are looking to follow along with what you're doing or to get in contact with you, how do they go about doing that? Well, we have uh, all of our, a, a, a good amount of our old client letters on our website, semperaugustus.com. Uh, you know, I write this crazy long letter and it's only been a public document. I've told that story before and I won't burn you with it here, but, um, you know, now I write this letter. It was 123 pages last year. You know, we try to get it out before the Berkshire letter is out because in the last five years I've talked a little bit about Berkshire. Uh, but we've got a, a good history of some of those going all the way back to 1999, that, that's that's a good resource. And, and you're on Twitter too. You should mention your Twitter account. Well, I, I am now on Twitter uh, as of uh, your buddy, our buddy O'Shaughnessy. After I did his my first podcast with him in the fall, uh, admonished me uh, to be on Twitter. In fact, he, he emailed me on the Saturday after he released the podcast. And he said, shouldn't you be on Twitter? And I said, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if I can manage it. He said, you need to be on Twitter. He said, he says, you're going to meet a lot of good people. There are a lot of allocators out there. He said, you know, the downside is if you do it right, it's going to consume way too much of your time and you're going to meet some idiots. But there are, there are very, but those guys are few and far between. And so, you know, I'm hemming and hawing like I do. I overthink everything. And, you know, he sends me this note that says, check your Twitter account. And he basically said, you know, Chris is now on Twitter. And I was sitting with my daughter at a golf tournament in, in Florida I said, oh, Jesus, what do I do with this? And she said, well, you better send a tweet out. And so I sent a tweet. I, I, I look at it occasionally. I, I should probably do more because I've learned. I know you're on there. It, it is a good resource. You know, there are some really thoughtful people that not only have good insights and thoughts, albeit in however many limited characters that you can have, but they link to good stuff. Yeah. Um, I have a hard time tweeting out because you know, if I'm a guy that writes a 123-page client letter, <laughs> trying to come up with any kind of a thought inside of, just link to the X, letter. X number of characters is it doesn't really work for me. Well, I'll make sure to link to all of that in the show notes. Uh, Chris Bloomstrand of Semper Augustus, thank you very much. I hope to see you soon in Redondo Beach, Toby. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. Yes, indeed. See ya. 